Would you please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect word, breathed out by your Holy Spirit, your word that brings life to that which is dead, your word that strengthens the weak, convicts the sinner, and encourages the depressed. Would you please make effective the preaching of your word today? Would you please break down our foolish hearts that are so easily distracted and drawn away and build them up in your word, in your truth? Would you please draw us, draw us to yourself even now? Even in the reading of your word, would you convict those that are far from you and comfort those who are near? By your great grace, Lord, make your word effective today for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage we just read is in a familiar chapter of the Gospel of Luke, especially around this time of year as we look toward Christmas, toward Christmas morning and the celebration of the birth of Jesus, the God-man. There are many families in which tradition holds that the first part of this chapter is read on Christmas morning before impatient little rascals get to tear into their new toys, mine included. But we often stop before we get to these verses we're considering together this morning. We stop at verse 20 with the shepherds going back to their sheep, praising God for all they had seen and heard, figuring that the hooligans have sat still long enough and the paper shredding will commence with or without our blessing, so you might as well stop. The shepherds here in in Luke were taken completely by surprise by what happened that night. They were looking for nothing more than a quiet night of watching their sheep when the angel host showed up with their good news of great joy. Now, to be clear, I'm not bad-mouthing the practice of stopping at verse 2 or verse 20 of Luke 2 on Christmas morning, and I'm not demeaning the unprepared shepherds. When they heard the best news in the history of the world, they responded as they should have, that is, with belief in what they heard and with great joy in seeing the baby Jesus. But what we see here with Simeon is, I think, much better than what we see with the shepherds. But before we get there, I think it will be helpful to set the stage, as it were, to the scene we kind of drop into this morning. After the birth of Jesus, his parents followed the law of God, the directions given for what to do with the child of the covenant. 
specifically a firstborn son. So on the eighth day, he was circumcised. And then about five weeks after that, 40 days after Jesus' birth, in accordance with the word of God given through Moses in Exodus 13, he was brought to the temple by his parents. This was for two reasons. The first was for the ceremonial purification and sin offering of Mary. And the second reason was to present Jesus to consecrate him as the firstborn son to God. Again, to fulfill the law of the Lord. In his circumcision, Jesus had received the lawful sign of the covenant. And in his consecration, his parents with him fulfilled the requirements of the law. With these acts of obedience by his parents, Jesus began an unerring, unswerving obedience to and fulfillment of every command of the law of God. All his life, Jesus lived in absolute obedience to the will of God. All of it. There was never a time in which he did something forbidden by the will of God. And there was never a time in which Jesus refrained from doing what the will of God required. Jesus never did anything wrong, and he always did everything right. This is a very important point. And we have to, at the very least, pay attention to what it means for us. We are saved by the death of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, he took the punishment. He appeased the just wrath of God for all the sin of all the people who would ever believe in him. He drank down every last drop of the cup of God's wrath so that there is none left for his people. That is true, that is beautiful, and that is important. But that is not the whole picture. We are saved by Jesus' death, and we are saved by Jesus' life. Our sins are taken by his death, but our righteousness is given to us by his life. Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, living a life perfectly pleasing to the Father. And by faith, we are given this righteousness, a righteousness we could never live up to. This Jesus' active obedience in his life is just as essential as his passive obedience on the cross. It is the reason that Jesus couldn't just be born and immediately be sacrificed to pay for sin and avoid the trouble of living 33 years of perfection. All that to get to Simeon in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Some of the folks who show up in the biblical narrative do so with a backstory and a fair amount of information. We learn where they come from, what they do, who their parents are, who their family is. Basically, we get all the answers to all the questions a suspicious father would ask someone interested in his daughter. But Simeon is not one of those people. We don't know anything but what is in these 10 verses. But what we learn in this thumbnail sketch is enough to put the big questions at rest. That is, we learn his name, where he is now, what he is known for, and what he is looking for. Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He was righteous and devout in the same way as Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist and other faithful folks were. That is, he believed that God is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do. Primarily, it means that Simeon believed that God would save his people by sending a Messiah, a Savior, to save them. There's something to be said about waiting for the fulfillment of a promise or waiting for any good thing. In the world we live in, we don't have to wait for anything. 
to the great detriment of my bank account, I can run across something I don't even know I needed one day and have have it show up at my doorstep the next day. It's dangerous in more than one way. Obviously, the financial aspect, but also, I think, is it's dangerous for our souls. Not because the things we buy are dangerous or sinful in themselves, although that can be. I think it is dangerous because of how easily, of how it can cause us to think about ourselves. Having every whim met as easily as we snap our fingers robs us of something. Namely, gratitude and peace. Gratitude for what we have been given by our Lord and peace with our lot in life. We are in constant danger of wondering what we are missing. Is there something else out there I haven't heard about or haven't seen yet that I must have to be satisfied? We wonder, or or at least I wonder too often. So we scroll through social media or shopping sites looking for fulfillment, buying things we know we could live without. But when the things show up on our doorstep, we're still not satisfied. The hole is still there. The desire for more is still lurking just outside the edge of our consciousness. But when we have to wait for something, when we really have to wait, there can be joy in the waiting. And the payoff is so much better, especially if the something is good, truly good. And so what we see with Simeon is different than what we see with the shepherds. Simeon spent his life waiting for the day that this Savior would come, and he would get to see him with his very own eyeballs. This is what gets him out of bed in the morning. Each day he could say, this could be the day that he would see his Savior, the consolation of Israel, the one who would come and comfort his people, who would bind them up and make them whole. He had this expectation because God revealed to him, as we see in verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Would that not get you up out of bed in the morning? Each day could be the day, the day he gets to see the one who would come to save him. What a picture of patient faithfulness. Coming to the temple, looking, waiting, watching day after day after day. This is the picture of the supernatural faithfulness of God in his people. It can only be by the power of God that Simeon continued to watch and wait as the years slipped by. It is a wonderful, glorious thing when young people are saved. They are often full of fire and zeal, ready to take on the entire world next week, ready to do all manner of great things. But I I think it is more glorious and probably more difficult to be in your seventh, eighth, or ninth decade of life and still be faithfully following the Lord. It is a great honor and one I certainly do not take lightly to be preaching to some in that category. You've heard a couple thousand sermons, most of them better than anything I could offer. You have seen and solved a hundred problems I haven't even considered, and you are faithfully following the Lord. You are here week after week after week modeling what faithfulness looks like. And that is to be honored, especially by the young. Simeon was watching and waiting. And then in verses 27 and 28, And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought 
in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. This is the day Simeon had been waiting for. As he came into the temple, led by the Spirit, he saw Mary and Joseph and the baby they carried and knew. He saw him and knew. This is the one. And he took the child Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God. This is the high point of Simeon's life. No matter what had happened before or what came after, this was enough. Simeon saw Jesus and worshipped. He blessed God. We have to ask, though, how did he know that this six-week-old baby was the one and not some other six-week-old? How did he know that it was this particular child on this particular day? I'll tell you that it wasn't because of the way that Jesus looked physically. We know that from Isaiah. And because, while babies are cute, well, most babies are cute, we know that in general they all look about the same. We have pictures of my four kids taken about this same age, Less pictures for each younger child, of course. And, and without the date stamp, I wouldn't have the foggiest clue which one is which. They all look the same at that age. So how did Simeon know beyond doubt that Jesus was the Lord's Christ, the anointed one of God? He knew the same way that we know beyond doubt that this account that we read of his life, death, and resurrection is true. The same way that we know when we read this book that it is true. It is truth by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't know anything about God if he had not revealed it to us. We would still be in our sin, hopeless and helpless, if he had not roused us from our stupor by his Spirit. God, by his Spirit, revealed to Simeon that the baby with the poor couple was the one he had been waiting for, and he took him up in his arms and blessed God and prophesied about the child he was holding. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon begins by acknowledging who he is speaking to, that is his Lord, the one who is in total control, the one who promised that the Messiah was coming and that Simeon would see him. Simeon addresses God as his Lord, not only as a way of showing respect, but as a sign of God's total authority over him. And, in, and his total submission to this authority. He continues, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I've heard folks say, usually after something pretty trivial, like eating a particularly good hamburger, that was so good I could die happy now. And I usually think, that was a good burger, but not that good. Would you really be ready to die now? Because that's a serious thing. There's no coming back from that. Simeon saw Jesus. He saw the Lord's salvation and he saw and believed and was really was ready to die. But Simeon is not alone in this. Anyone, anyone who has seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. In the most important sense, when by grace through faith we see Jesus and his salvation, we are ready to depart in peace no matter our age. We assume that Simeon is an old man, but the text doesn't explicitly tell us. 
He could have been a young man or a middle-aged man. No matter his age, he was ready to die because he had seen the Lord's Christ and the salvation he would bring and believed. Let me ask you, are you ready to die? Have you seen Jesus by faith? Have you trusted him? Have you seen him crucified for your sins? Have you seen him raised for your salvation? It is then and only then that you are really prepared to die. Notice that Simeon was ready then at that point. He didn't need anything more. He didn't need to wait and watch Jesus grow up and do all the things he would do in his life. He didn't need to see Jesus die on the cross and then witness his resurrection and ascension into heaven. One glimpse of the Christ child and Simeon was ready to go home to God. He saw all that he needed to and by faith that was enough. Simeon saw all this and praised God. He saw the salvation that the Lord had prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The salvation was not for Simeon alone or even the Jews alone, but for all peoples. This does not mean that salvation will come to every individual, but to all kinds of people. The gospel cuts across every class and ethnicity, men and women, kings and slaves, rich and poor. In short, the gospel is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that is just what we see here in Simeon's song of praise. God has sheep in every corner of the earth, and by the proclamation of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit, he will bring them to himself. This is the reason we must and are able to evangelize the world. We must because Jesus commands it, and we are able to because God promises results not by our own cleverness, but by His work. It is why, also why we can continue to work, even when it seems as though nothing is happening. William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement across the world, labored for seven years in India before he baptized his first convert. If he had not believed that God had sheep in India, he would have given up and gone home long before that. Phil Riken says, Jesus is God's light to the nations. The whole world is covered with darkness through sin. But Jesus has come to dispel the darkness, to shine the light of salvation into every dark corner of every dim heart. It is because of him that we have a gospel we can take to all the nations and offer to everyone. We can say to people, look, here is salvation. Jesus Christ is God's light for the world. See him and be saved. Remember that as Simeon is singing, as he worships God for keeping his promise, allowing him to see the Savior, Joseph and Mary are still standing there, slack-jawed. As Luke says in verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. In spite of what they knew already, both both what had been revealed to them by angels and by what happened with the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, they are still astonished. That doesn't mean that they were surprised by new information. It means that they were struck once again with the greatness of the baby in Simeon's arms. To paraphrase John Calvin, we learn from this example that when we have right faith, that is faith in Christ, we ought to snatch up whatever will strengthen that faith from the reading and the hearing of the Word of God. And as we read and hear God's Word, we ought marvel. This is the Word of God. This is astounding. God has spoken to us 
in a way that we can understand. This should blow our hair back. This should knock our socks off. More, what he tells us is good news. Christ came to save sinners. And we're sinners. We can be saved. Why are our jaws not on the floor? Do we really marvel anew at the glory of God in the salvation of sinners every time we hear the gospel? Because we should. We should be astonished that as John writes in 1 John, or 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This should make us weak in the knees with amazement. It should cause us great joy, unshakable, unconquerable joy. If it is true, and it is, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That we might live through Him. Not because of our goodness or our love of God or anything that we have done or will do or could do, but because He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing, sin-atoning sacrifice for us, for our sins. Because this is true, we have nothing to fear and should live with more joy than can be contained by the world. This is what we look to on Christmas morning. It is way better than knickknacks under the tree. This life in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is better than anything the world can offer and greater than any threat the world throws at us. Simeon finishes singing and turns from Jesus to Mary. Verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own heart through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts, from many hearts, may be revealed. Not all of what Simeon said was easy to hear, just as not all of what Jesus would say would be easy to hear. Jesus was to be the great divider, but not in the way that was expected. Listen carefully here. Jesus is the most divisive person in the history of the world. Let's look at what Simeon says. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. What does that mean? It means that with Jesus, there is no room for neutrality. There are many, many things in life that we can be unsure or indecisive about. From simple things like sports and food, and what color shirt to wear, to more important things like What job should I have? When should I retire? Should I retire? Where should I live? We can have many questions and opinions or be indifferent about these things and many others. But we cannot, and by cannot, I actually mean it is not possible to be indifferent or neutral about Jesus Christ. When someone encounters the Lord Jesus Christ, he is either for him or against him. He either trips and falls over him or is in the very truest sense raised from the dead by him. 
There is no middle way, no way to tightrope your way down the road of respected teacher, but not Lord. No way to say that Jesus is a good example, but not the only way to salvation. To encounter Jesus is to be brought to a point of decision. Some will fall to the point of collapse, and others to a spiritual resurrection now, and to a full resurrection when Christ returns. And this is exactly what we see Simeon say. And here I will set aside what he tells Mary directly, but we'll come back to it later. In your Bibles, it's probably in parentheses or at the end of verse 35. Simeon says that the child is appointed for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. R.C. Sproul says, Simeon said that Jesus would be a sign to be opposed. The word for sign is a very strong word. It indicates, and indicates a manifestation that is so visible, that is so clear, that no one could miss it. It's a word often used in the New Testament for miracle. For example, in John's Gospel, when Jesus does a miracle, John writes, and Jesus did this sign. It's a sign that bears witness to the identity of Christ, to his power, character, and nature as the Son of God. It's a sign that will provoke hostility. People will speak against it. Simeon here at, at first only spoke about the verbal insults, the hatred that would be spewed at Jesus during his life. But there would be more. The words of Simeon about the baby Jesus call to mind those of the prophet Isaiah about the suffering servant, the one who would come to bear the sin of all who would ever believe in him. And I'll read just a few verses from Isaiah 53 to give you an idea of what I mean. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So as Simeon spoke these words, he gave the first hint of the suffering that Jesus would have to endure as he competed his work to bring salvation. If we had time to look at what came in Luke chapter 1, we would see that the prophecies of Mary and Zechariah, and even early in in chapter 2 with the angels who came to the shepherds, we have learned about the greatness and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard about the kingship of Jesus and his divine lordship, and that he would bring peace to his people. But it would not be easy. Jesus' ministry would be difficult. It would come in with opposition, not only in words, but in actions. The Jewish rulers would try to kill him repeatedly. People would oppose him at every turn. They would reject him and stand against him until finally they nailed him to a cross and left him to die. And this is where we'll look at what Simeon told Mary. Verse 35, the, the first part. And a sword will pierce through your heart also. This was a, the record suddenly stopping with a squelch from the needle. Simeon had been telling of the greatness of Jesus. This is the one, and he was born to Mary. She had to be bursting with pride to hear all this. Now that he's seen the child Jesus, Simeon is ready to die. This is the salvation of God, and he's seen him with his own eyes. This is the one who had been promised from the beginning, 
First to Adam and Eve, and then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the prophets. And now he has come. Mary must have intense joy over the birth of her son. There has to be great excitement with what will become of this most special of babies. And now she hears this, a sword will pierce through your soul also. Also. Wait, what does that mean, also? This precious child will be hurt on purpose? This is the shadow that followed Mary as she raised Jesus. She would always remember what Simeon had said. This was not for nothing. God used this prophecy to prepare Mary for the crucifixion so that in the end, she would believe and be saved. Mary was not saved by bearing Jesus, by giving birth to Jesus. Mary was saved by grace through faith, so that when she stood at the foot of the cross of Christ, she would know that the prophecy had come true, and by faith, believe. The side of her son was pierced, and in that, so was her own soul. This prophecy does more than give Mary a hint of what was coming. It also shows that from the beginning, God had a mission for Jesus that required him to suffer and die for sinners. This was not some thrown-together plan. The birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of God's people was no accident. It was the plan from eternity past. This was always plan A, and there was no plan B. God was not, has never been, and will never be caught off guard by anything large or small. All that Jesus did was in accordance with the preordained plan. The plan of salvation for every one of the shepherd's sheep. That is not the salvation of every single person as is made clear, as is made clear throughout Scripture. That is the plan for the salvation of the specific sheep for the glory of God. A number too great to count from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Are you one of those numbered among his sheep? How can you tell? You don't have to guess, and you shouldn't assume just because you have gone to church your whole life that you are indeed counted among the sheep. You are numbered among the sheep of God if you have trusted in the Son of God for the forgiveness of your sins and your salvation. This means that you are not relying on anything else. This means you have humbled yourself before him, trusting in nothing but his finished work. Jesus exposes what is in our hearts, and to encounter him is to be laid bare before him. And at that point, we can do one of two things. We can either be properly humbled by our sin, at which point we will see our need for grace and be drawn to him, coming to him for cover. When we come to him, he will cover us. He will clothe us in his clothes, those without spot, those without stain. And those clothed in the clothes of Christ will rise by faith. In every sense of that word rise, in the way that Simeon used it as in resurrection, and we will also rise with Jesus to heaven, to the glory of God. The only other option when we encounter Jesus is to proudly cover, try to cover our sin and shame ourselves. Or worse yet, to refuse to even acknowledge there is sin and shame to be covered. There are those who refuse to be humbled by their sin that stand proud, not even recognizing their need of forgiveness. These are the folks who are offended at the very thought that salvation only comes through Christ and his cross, because they think they can make it on their own. They're unwilling or even unable to believe 
that someone else would have to die for their sins. For many, Jesus only gets in the way of living the kind of life they want to, morally outward as, or outwardly moral as it may be. But Jesus cannot be gotten around. He is the stumbling block that trips up even the most meticulously moral person. This is what Simeon meant by the fall and rising of many in Israel. Although some receive him by faith, others reject him in unbelief. As Michael Whitlock said, they speak against this sign of God's love that has been offered to them. For it searches men's hearts, and some will be scandalized by a salvation that can only be achieved by way of the cross. This is the way it's been for 2,000 years. When people truly understand the claims of Christ, most are shocked and scandalized. Folks are appalled when they discover that Christ Jesus actually made definitive claims like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And that he meant them. They call it bigotive or exclusivist or scary. It is scary to a world where there is no truth to be conf- there, It is scary to a world where, where there is no truth to be confronted with truth. This explains why there is so much opposition, so much resistance to Christian truth across the spectrum. From college campuses to politics in the public square. It explains why other world religions are all united in their opposition to Christianity. It is the very thing that Jesus came to do, to reveal the true inward condition of every heart, whether in faith or unbelief. When people are opposed to Christians, it is because they are opposed to Christ. And whatever opposition we face is a sign that he is truly present in us. I heard of an obituary this week of a woman who died in her 90s. In her obituary, it told of her conversion to Judaism because she wanted a God to worship, but never liked the notion of a Savior. This defined her enough that in the limited space of an obituary, it was worth mentioning. This was a woman who I'm sure lived a moral life, at least to her own satisfaction. I doubt she was a bank robber or a murderer. And so in her own eyes, she did not need a Savior. He only got in the way. Let that not be us. Let us not fall. Let us trust in the Son who came to save. Let us humble ourselves before Him. Let us, each of us, trust in Christ. This is the defining question of our life. What will we do with Jesus Christ? Are you for Him or against Him? Will you rise or will you fall? This is the great question of life and death because what God will do for us for all eternity depends on what we do with Jesus right now. He is the great divide. There is no neutrality. Either we are with Jesus or we are against him. And if we are against him, we will fall down into spiritual death, down to, from spiritual death down to physical death and down to hell itself. Christians, those who are trusting in Christ, will celebrate his birth with vigor and joy deeper than anything the world can muster. We should out-celebrate the world in all that we do. For from him and to him and through him are all things. Fellow Christians, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are celebrating the birth of our Savior. Really, this is cause for great joy, joy uncontainable. For when Christ came, he fulfilled Psalm 16, 11. You have made, 
You, ha- you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that you did not leave us, your people, to be trapped in our sin with no way of escape. You made yourself known to us, first by speaking to your prophets and most fully in the person and work of Jesus. Please don't ever let us stop marveling at this. Please don't let the gospel ever get old or stale to us, but cause us to worship with great joy every time, every single time we hear the, of the birth and the life and the death of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us this great joy and help us to live with joy in all that we do. And help us to repent of our sin when we do not. We also pray for those who have encountered Jesus and have stumbled over him. We pray that you would cause them to see that there is no greater joy than to humble ourselves before him. To repent of sin and trust in him. We pray that all we do would be according to your will and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.